Good. So we're going to spend the next, well, it's going to end up being five weeks in Jonah. Um, it, we're, like I said, I'm not preaching next week, and so we're just going to leap over. And this morning, we're going to look to tackle uh, a lot of introductory matters about Jonah. I'm going to try to set the stage historically, understand what context Jonah lived in, what context he ministered in, because all of that is relevant as we begin to understand the book of Jonah. Uh, but the book of Jonah is a narrative. It's a story. It tells us about this guy who did this thing, and then this happened. And we maybe know what those things and happenings are, but we'll unfold them over the next several weeks. And it will be very different. It'll teach very, very differently than Philippians did, where Paul is writing this letter to this church, and he is just compounding propositional truth statement after propositional truth statement. There are direct commands that Paul gives to the church. I want you to do this. Rejoice in the Lord always. We don't have those types of commands directed at us through the book of Jonah, but Jonah has truths to communicate. God has truths to communicate to us through the book of Jonah, and I think we're going to see those clearly as we go. Let's think through briefly some primary and secondary themes that we're going to see unfold over the next several weeks. One of them, one of the primary themes of Jonah is the call to go. God calls Jonah and says, I want you to go. That's one of the primary themes. There's actually, because of how this theme's repeated in the New Testament, a command that you and I are called to do just the same thing. So if you're sitting here this morning and wondering, is the book of Jonah going to be about me having to go tell my neighbor about Jesus and witness and evangelize? Let me just answer questions simply. Yes, it is. It is. And you know what? We can actually probably relate to Jonah a little bit in the fact that maybe God has clearly told us to go and we decide to went and not go. We're going to see that call to go. We're going to see God's compassion and mercy. God's compassion and mercy. And we're, we're going to see that highlighted over against Jonah's selfishness. Jonah, quite frankly, is probably one of the most selfish individuals that the Bible gives record of. I'm going to try to look at that a little bit as we go. We're going to see God's sovereignty over all things as we look what the Lord does with the storm, as we look what the Lord does with the fish, as we look what the Lord does with the boat. As we, and just time and time again throughout these four chapters in Jonah, God's sovereignty over all things is going to be on display. But a secondary theme to that is going to be how man's responsibility pulls in there. Because God's going to do some things, and the scriptures are clear that God did some things. But Jonah's actions had consequences. There was a responsibility that he had. And so in the midst of seeing God's sovereignty, we're going to see man's, our responsibility. And we're going to maybe see this morning, a little bit in two weeks, very clearly, I think, the rippling consequences of disobedience. Jonah's disobedience to go, or to not go, rather to flee, didn't just affect him. It affected a whole bunch of people. It affected a whole bunch of people. And so we're going to see the rippling consequences of disobedience. 
Now, the book of Jonah is a bit of a, a difficult challenge, perhaps because of some of those very things that have been put on the screen. Did God really appoint a big fish? Did he really appoint a big weed? Did he really appoint a worm to come eat the weed? Did he really hurl a giant storm? There, there's some difficulty when you look at those things and you wonder about that. But I want us to see that Jesus mentioned and affirmed Jonah. In Matthew 12, 38 to 41, Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And he uses the phrase, the sign of Jonah. We're going to unpack that as we get into chapter 4. What is exactly the sign of Jonah? How does it relate to Jesus? How does Jesus relate what happened to Jonah to himself? Because he directly relates those things to himself. But we see in Matthew 16, different audience. It's a different day. Jesus is with some Pharisees and Sadducees. And he makes a very similar statement. The sign of Jonah. He references Jonah. Luke records, and this is interesting because Luke and Matthew's account, the Matthew 12 account and Luke's account, seem to be very parallel. Almost as if they were two accounts of the same event. But Luke records that there's an entirely different setup. Matthew says, the scribes and the Pharisees were there. And Jesus said, you demand a sign, but no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And then here it is. Well, Luke records for us that Jesus was teaching the crowds and says something very similar. So at least two, if not three different occasions during the ministry of Jesus, he directly references Jonah, directly references three days in the belly of a fish and says, that's going to be applied to me. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to step into and we're going to think about the fish and what was it and could it have been and all of those things. But I'm, I'm just going to tell you, if you have a problem with Jonah and the big fish as just one example of God's sovereignty here, you're actually going to have a problem with Jesus in an empty tomb. Because that's how Jesus used the story of Jonah. If you got a problem with Jonah and the big fish, you're going to eventually, ultimately have a problem with Jesus and the empty grave. And I would submit to you that your issue is not trying to figure out how big the fish might have been, but perhaps how little the God you have in mind is. And if you just set all of the events of Jonah underneath a biblical worldview that Genesis 1-1 outlines for us so clearly in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if, that, if that's where we begin, if that's our baseline framework of who this God is that has self-disclosed himself in Scripture and said, before anything, I was and I am, and then I created everything, well, the, the fish really isn't that big of a deal. I mean, if, if, the, if the fish is swimming in a sea that's in the midst of a planet that's suspended in the midst of a galaxy set amongst other galaxies in this great big expanse we refer to the universe and we believe that God created it all. Why is the fish an issue? It's, it's, it's not. Is the fish, well, I can't get into the fish. I'll, that's two weeks from now. Come back in two weeks and we'll have the fish. We got to be real careful with what we 
with, with how little we may believe God is. And I think stories like this, these accounts, as we, as we interact with them and we go, holy smokes, there's some, some supernatural things happening there. If you've got a problem with Jonah and the fish, you're going to have a problem with Jesus and the empty grave. The problem's not how big the fish might have been. The problem's how little your God is. You are God alone from before time began. You are on your throne. And before we go any further, we step into Jonah 1. Let's pray. God in heaven, we ask that you would come and through this book, come meet with us. God, there is absolutely no question that this book reveals some incredible things. It reveals some incredible things about you. It reveals some incredible things about your power. It, it, it gives us stunning statements that we have to try to reconcile and wrap our minds around as we think about how big you are, the godness that you have. God, this book's going to reveal some incredible things about perhaps who we are and how there's maybe a whole lot more Jonah in me than I care to admit. And so God, I pray that you would come and meet with us and you would, you would be gracious to reveal these things to us. God, that you would use your word and your, your, your spirit would use the word to expose these things in our heart, that your word would cut as the living and active double-edged sword, but you would also use your words to, or your word to heal, to, to equip, to encourage, to exhort, to train in righteousness. So God, as we, as we begin to unpack this story of a perhaps famous but relatively obscure prophet. I pray that you'd be gracious to us as we draw near to listen. Would you speak clearly? And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, let's go to Jonah 1, and let's start trying to just kind of get our minds wrapped around these first six verses together. The text says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So there we have in verses 1 and 2, we have a set of characters introduced to us, and we have Jonah, and we have the Lord, and we have Jonah's command. And so let's consider just briefly who this man Jonah is. Well, in 2 Kings, we have the only other reference to Jonah in the entire Old Testament. Like I said, Jesus references Jonah three different times. But here we have a little bit, just a glimpse of who Jonah was. And this begins to help us perhaps understand a little bit of the historical context to which Jonah ministered in. But here we have, in 2 Kings 14.25, we're hearing the writer of Kings, 2 Kings, talk about one of the kings that ruled over Samaria. So, very brief history. You had the kingdom of David, 
was a unified kingdom. All 12 tribes, there was one section of land. They were all divided as they should have been. Solomon, by and large, had the same type of kingdom. Economic prosperity during the reign of Solomon was untold. We considered a lot of those things as we began to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And then towards the end of Solomon's life, his thousand women and all of their gods were told in first or Second Kings 11, turned his heart away. And so the kingdom now splits after Solomon. And you have a northern kingdom, which was comprised of ten tribes, and their capital city was Samaria. And you have a southern kingdom comprised of two tribes, and their capital city was Jerusalem. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom, the ten tribe track of land. The northern kingdom, quite frankly, was the one that sooner than the southern kingdom, and probably with greater speed and ferociousness, didn't follow the Lord. The southern kingdom kind of hung out and, and, and did some good things for a while. They had some good kings. They had some bum kings. They, but then eventually they got conquered and Daniel got taken to Babylon. And then later Ezra and Nehemiah come on the scene. And so the he restored the border of Israel. This is speaking of a king. And we read, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, Gath-Hefer was about three miles from what is now, or what we can now know from the New Testament is Nazareth. And it's probably not inappropriate to say Jonah of Nazareth. Some more interesting parallels when you consider Jesus of Nazareth. But Jonah was a prophet. We have his father's name listed. And Jonah prophesied to King, I believe it was Jeroboam II, that there was to be a, an expansion of the land of this northern kingdom. And what they essentially did in conquering these plots of land that are discussed here is they reclaimed the borders that had been enjoyed under King Solomon. So in, in many ways, there was like a restoring to former glory that took place under the reign of King Jeroboam II. And Jonah prophesied regarding the expansion of Israel's border and the reclaiming of this land that had been taken by force. I think it'd perhaps be fair to say Jonah was a nationalist. He loved his country. God used him to prophesy that the borders were to expand. Israel went and conquered. They expanded. But as I said earlier, he was one of the most selfish men in the Bible. And his nationalism is a big part of that. I briefly, and I really, I do mean briefly, just want to consider some of the historical context that then happens after Jonah. And to do so, it would be similar to say, you know, the, the, the century of the 1900s in American life brought a lot of change. And we're trying to give that type of broad, wide-sweeping summary 
here. But there was about 80 years of history that took place between when Jonah made this prophecy that's recorded in 2 Kings 14 for us and probably when the Assyrian army came and conquered Samaria. Jonah lived most likely in the capital city of Samaria. That's why he would be where the king was, prophesying to the king about what the king should do. Jonah could have certainly traveled around the northern kingdom. He could have certainly traveled around those areas. But this was probably where uh, his, his residence was, even though he and his father were from the Nazareth area. He probably worked his way up to the capital city of Samaria and then prophesied to the king, as we see other prophets doing. But it was about 80 years after the expansion of these territories, which kind of reclaimed Israel to a former state of glory, that the very people Jonah is sent to share the gospel with come in and conquer all of Jonah's brothers, sisters, fellow Israelites. And as I mentioned before, the, so- the southern kingdom had a little better track of following the Lord The northern kingdom had a terrible track record. We're not going to read and go into detail, but if you would just look from 2 Kings 14 to 2 Kings 17, you would read the historical accounts of all the kings that happened and led. You're going to read about political assassinations. This This is for Israel. This is God's people. Political assassinations. You're going to read about how every one of the kings that ruled from Samaria was evil. You're going to read then when you get to 2 Kings 17, in verse 13 in particular, that the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. I think Jonah gets included in that group. And he said through his prophets, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I have commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. And we have, in in interesting fashion, if we think about the story of Jonah and what happens in Nineveh, the Ninevites repenting after just days of a prophet coming and speaking on behalf of the Lord. But Jonah's hometown and nation unwilling to listen to every prophet and every seer that the Lord sent. And then the Lord actually uses the Ninevites to come and conquer the Israelites living in Samaria. If you wonder where, when we fast forward to the New Testament, the, the hatred, the disdain for the Samaritans comes from, it's from these moments in 2 Kings 17. Because when the Assyrian army, when the Ninevites came in and they conquered Samaria, the Samaritans and the Assyrians began to intermarry. And from that point on, the Samaritans were considered half-breeds because they were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. So when Jesus meets the woman at the well who's a Samaritan woman and breaks every social and cultural norm by even traveling through that region, it can all get traced back to these moments. It can all get traced back to where and who Jonah was and what was happening at this point in time. 
The prophet Hosea also was around during this period of time. The prophet Amos was also around during this period of time, both speaking, prophesying, and writing in the northern kingdom just as Jonah was. And Jonah tells the Lord to go. His own nation is falling apart. His own nation is being led by corrupt, evil kings who did not follow the Lord and allowed the Lord or allowed or led the nation further and further into rampant idolatry. Second Kings, Kings 17 will tell us that their idolatry and their hearts were so far from the Lord that you actually have child sacrifice taking place. This is where Jonah lived. These were the people that he was called to speak to in, in, the, in the sense of his hometown crowd. But God actually calls Jonah to go. And he says this, The word of the Lord came, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And I mentioned to you, the call to go is one that we have repeated in the New Testament. The call to go is one that is given to us as disciples of Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We've tried to capture that with a little pallet that hangs on the wall, Christ-centered witness, We've tried to give some definition to what that is, that we believe all followers of Jesus have been placed in a mission field. You're a missionary now. If you would say, I love Jesus Christ, then you are a missionary. You work and you live and you eat and you shop in your mission field. And you have been placed there by the God of the universe to love and serve and share with others the good news of the gospel. God might have told Jonah, I want you to walk or ride a donkey some 550 miles to another part of the world and go share the gospel. God's told every single one of us, when you go grocery shopping this week, when you see your neighbor tomorrow, when you check back into work on Monday morning, that's where I've sent you. God surely may one day call you to go to Africa, but he's called you today to be salt and light where you already are. Believers are go and tell people. And it's interesting because like Jonah, and some of this gets disclosed more in chapter 4 where Jonah begins to pitch a big old pity party and he begins to pout because God actually did save the Ninevites and he said, this is why I ran, because I knew that you were going to save them. You and I can actually dislike, perhaps we could say hate, certain people so much. Maybe they're family members, maybe you call them in-laws. We can hate or dislike coworkers. We can hate or dislike neighbors. We can hate or dislike people of different skin color, people who live in different nations, those who disagree with us politically, those who have different views on gun control. You can hate or dislike those individuals who are so different than you that you can actually prefer that they not hear the gospel and they not be told about Jesus Christ or that you don't have to tell them. 
And in that sense, you and I are no different than Jonah. Because the call to go is no different. So if you're willing to let any, any point of distinguishment determine whether or not you are willing to share the gospel with somebody, you've got to check that with the Lord. We live in a culture right now where those battle lines get drawn, it feels like, every day. What side are you on? And if you're on this side, you're only supposed to throw hand grenades to the other side. And Wait a minute. That may be 2018 America. That is not the Bible. We've been called to go. That's the primary objective. Make disciples who make disciples. You've not been called to go advocate for a party or political position or whatever. Our citizenship's in heaven. We're really a lot like Jonah if we stop and care to look. Jonah's called to go to a great city. We're told that city was Nineveh. Nineveh was about 550 miles from Israel, or I should say Samaria, excuse me. Nineveh was built by Noah's great-grandson. In Genesis 10, verses 10 and 11, we read about Nimrod. Nimrod, incidentally enough, was the one who led the charge in building the Tower of Babel. That didn't end well. So Nimrod traveled to some new location and built Nineveh. And here we read that God is calling a Jewish prophet to go to a Gentile city. So let's think about how this travel would have gone. The yellow dot in the middle is, is about roughly where Jonah would have been. I mean, there you have Samaria. You've got Joppa, which is where Jonah actually goes to find a boat to board. The red line is where he should have gone. He should have gone to modern-day Iraq. It's the city right outside of Mosul. So, I mean, we can even think about this in the context of modern-day Israel and Iraqi relations. There's probably still a lot of truth being played out in what this call would have been. I don't want to minimize the call Jonah had. He was given quite the directive by the Lord. But rather than go to Nineveh, rather than take the 550 or so mile journey then Jonah goes down to Joppa. We read in verse 3, we see there at the beginning the word but. So the Lord in verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose, so he did the rising part, but he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I just want to make some observations about the text here briefly for us. Three times in verse 3, the city Tarshish is named. The author is trying to tell us something. 
there was a location that Jonah was running to, and it was Tarshish. We shouldn't wonder about that. Tarshish there, if you follow the blue line to the yellow circle on the left, is essentially the southern tip of modern-day Spain, more than likely right where the Mediterranean Sea meets the Atlantic Ocean. It quite possibly could have been the furthest possible place known to Jonah at that point in time. He is trying to go as absolutely far away as possible. All right, in modern day America, let's think about this. Maybe you get your ticket to ride board in mind here or Google Maps and you go, all right, the Lord told Jonah to go up to Maine. Portland, Maine is about 550 miles from Waynesboro. Jonah rather went to Portland, Oregon, which is about 2,600 miles away from Waynesboro. Tarshish is about 2,550 miles away from Joppa. And Jonah was going to travel by sea. The other thing I want us to see, or one of the other things I want us to see in the text, is that we have for us twice the author telling us that Jonah's desire was to flee from the presence of the Lord. And that, that's a bit funny, to be quite honest, because we're going to see later on throughout this book, Jonah has pretty good theology. In two weeks, he's going to have a conversation with the sailors, and he's going to have and, and articulate to them really good orthodox theology. And in chapter 4, when he has a conversation with the Lord about why he's pitching this big old pity party, he's going to have really good theology, but here he thinks that he can run from the presence of the Lord. He thinks that, well, I guess if I just go to the furthest known place possible, God can't find me there. Well, God found him. The other thing, and it's just a literary thing, but it's interesting as we think about what the author is trying to tell us. The words there in the middle of chapter 3, he went down to Joppa. That word gets repeated where then he paid a fare and went down into the ship. And that is repeated one last time in chapter 2 where Jonah went down into the ocean. It's a Hebrew literary device that just tells us he's sinking lower and lower and lower as he goes. So Jonah's running. Jonah's running away from the presence of the Lord Jonah didn't board a tall ship like the one harbored in Baltimore. Jonah more than likely boarded this type of ship, which was probably very large for its day, but not the giant Pirates of the Caribbean ships that we may have in mind through films. It certainly wasn't a steel ship. It was a a wood ship, and that becomes pretty significant when we think about what then begins to happen in verses 4 and 5. And so here we are, just to summarize where we're at so far in the text, we have the Lord telling Jonah, arise and go, but Jonah rises and flees, but then verse 4 starts with another, but it's a bit of a punch, counterpunch, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. 
They began crossing the Mediterranean seas. Jonah had paid his fare. He boarded the ship in Joppa. He began to make this journey, and the Lord hurled up a great storm at them. The scholars that I read this past week in preparation for some of the details about what this would have been speculate that it was probably hurricane force winds that were at play. Probably large waves and swells of the ocean were, as we're told, threatening to destroy the ship. And I want to show you a video clip here this morning. Of um, It's from the movie The Finest Hours which Disney put together a few years ago uh, to dramatically picture um, one of the most amazing, if not the most amazing, Coast Guard rescues that has happened in the history of the Coast Guard. But it took place off the eastern, northern eastern coast in the United States, and there was hurricane force winds and a steel ship split in half. And this small little boat, probably no bigger than the one on the screen, traveled out and saved some 20 or so sailors. It's an amazing story, but maybe to give us just a bit of a, a, a way to feel perhaps what these sailors would have felt as their ship is being tossed back and forth through a mighty tempest and a great wind, probably not the movie you want to watch before taking a cruise. Can you imagine can you imagine? And here's one of the ways that we see God's sovereignty on display here. Is that we're told in verse 4 that God hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the ship so hard that it threatened to break them up. And God did that. But at the very same time, he's not letting the ship break up. So he's simultaneously hurling what he's got. Not the best that he's got, because there are going to be two other times that we're told the storm gets worse. But God is hurling winds and waves at this ship, but simultaneously not trying or not letting this ship get destroyed. Because God wants Jonah to understand some things. We read in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. These pagan sailors, perhaps a collection of people from different nations, different gods, perhaps some of them would have been gods that the nation of Israel had been worshiping, that were false gods. They had gods, and they cried out to them, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it up. For them, We begin to see a little bit that our disobedience has rippling effects. I think oftentimes we can be prone to think that my disobedience affects me. But we see very clearly in Jonah that there are rippling effects of disobedience that do not just affect us. They affect those around us. It affects our relationship with the Lord. Verse 3, we're told twice, Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's relationship with the Lord was affected. Without question. We read in verses 4 and 5 that then disobedience has a rippling effect to everyone around us. The ship 
threaten to break up. The sailors are afraid. They're hurling cargo out of the ship to lighten it, perhaps to make it sit a little higher in the water and not take the beating of what's underneath the waves nearly as forcefully. We see in verse 6 that disobedience numbs us to those around us as well. Second part of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship. And he had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. We see that Jonah's disobedience actually numbed him to what was happening around him. And in many ways, this, this sub-theme of disobedience and the rippling effects of it, at least through chapter 1, speaks so loudly, so clearly. And it, it's applicable to not just our willingness to go and share the gospel, but all areas of life, all areas where we make conscious decisions to not do what the Lord tells us to do. It will affect our relationship with the Lord. It will affect those around us, and it will begin to numb us to those around us. We will begin to, to lose a, a capacity for, for love and compassion and empathy and gentleness and selflessness and self-control, and, and, and we're going to begin to be numb to those around us when we Walk in active disobedience to the Lord. I remember talking with a, a student of mine. His, his father actually had left his mother for a time. They, they came back together, and it was an amazing story of reconciliation. It's one of those that it didn't look like it was going to happen, but it did. It was amazing. And I forget what brought it all up, but it, was, it felt appropriate to just kind of ask him, what, what was it like when dad was out of the home for those couple years? What, what did you think? I mean, you were an, you were an eight or nine-year-old boy. What, what do you remember? What do you think? And I remember just tell, him telling me, well, dad would come over and we'd, we'd just watch movies on the couch. And now that was 180 degrees different than the relationship I knew this man had with his son. The man I knew and this son had a relationship where every active moment there was available, they were throwing something at each other. Baseball, football, frisbee, they were shooting basketballs, they were, they were in the yard doing yard work, and every active moment available this man was investing time in his son, and his son was right there. And for him to tell me that when his dad left, just, we just watched movies. It's as if dad knew I needed to still engage, but the relationship was so broken because of disobedience. It was so strained, and it was so, it was so numb that it was, it was easier to just sit next to each other 
be entertained by a scream and spend some time. And I think there's perhaps an illustration of how disobedience just numbs us to those around us. And it certainly affects everyone around us, and it certainly affects our relationship with the Lord. And so in some sense, there's a couple different questions we need to ask ourselves this morning. The one is, are you walking in active disobedience with the Lord or before the Lord? Are you, are you hoping He's not going to find out? Are you trying to, to metaphorically flee to the other end of the known world so that maybe there He won't see what you're doing? Well, He's going to see it. He does see it. And it will not just affect you, it will affect those around you. And it will actually eventually begin to numb you to the people that are around you. They'll find themselves in the midst of a storm that is the direct result of your actions. And you're just going to be down below taking a power nap. I think there's significant questions that we have to ask ourselves there. But I think we also have to ask ourselves, how are we doing at the command to go? How are we doing at the command to be, go, and tell people who have been given the exact same command that Jonah has been given? Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of every nation. How are you doing with that? And there, there can be an active sense of disobedience there. Certainly, you can, you can decide, I'm, I'm not, like that person, not hearing the gospel from me. You can choose, I disagree with them on that point, and they, no, my, my kindness only goes so far, it only extends to that. You can actively make that choice, but you can often, and I find myself often just passively making that choice. Well, it just doesn't feel like the right time to bring it up. I'm just going gonna, gonna, gonna to hold back and kind of look for my moment. I'll let my, I'll let my actions do all of my, my talking. We can passively disobey this command to be go and tell people. I don't want to at all downplay how difficult of a calling Jonah was given. I, I think it's similar. Well, perhaps this could help us. I think there's similarities in Jonah's call to somebody right after September 11th being told to go to Afghanistan and share the gospel with Al-Qaeda. I think there's similarities there. Because Assyria was a known conquering force. They were a bit on the downturn at this point. That's perhaps what allowed Israel to reclaim some of their territory. But they were just kind of regathering themselves. And it wasn't but a couple kings later couple years, decades later, that they reemerge as a world power. And they come and they conquer the Israelites. I think there's some similarities there. It's, it's, a, 
it's not an easy thing this man was called to do. I don't want to downplay that or minimize that. And some of you have situations where to obey the call is not an easy task. But it's still the call. We've still been commanded to be go and tell people. And I think we see a little bit of Jonah's selfishness in the fact that he didn't want to go to those people because he knew who those people were and he didn't like those people and he disagreed with those people and he had some issues with those people but we also see what happens when he doesn't go and the, the, the book of Jonah is like 80 grit sandpaper if we're honest like it, it's just it's going to scratch and it's going to hurt and might leave our souls feeling a bit raw. But that's what God's Word's supposed to do. And it's supposed to come right back and heal and mend and equip and train and encourage. So I would encourage you over the next several weeks, I mean, let's just as hard as it may be, let's lean in. Let God speak through this selfish, runaway prophet. At least I know in my life, there's a whole lot more similarities than I would care to admit. God in heaven, we thank you for including men like Jonah. Men who really don't even have a like a glorious ending. It's not even as if he, he kind of fails miserably in the end and he's got the awesome victory story later in chapter 4. He, he kind of ends a little bit worse than he began, quite frankly, and you have given him to us as someone to learn from. And even in the midst of his disobedience and even in the midst of his pouting and his, his just staunch refusal, to acknowledge and submit to who you are, and, and really his, his plea for these people to die. You're still gracious and compassionate to him. And so God, as we, as we think about these things, as we, as we think about who you are and what it is that you've called us to and how you've called us to be go and tell people, God, help us to not lose sight of all of who you are and understand those things clearly. You are a God who's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.